everybody, welcome to a new edition of the Quarcast. It's episode 8, May 15th, 2020. I'm Owen Newkirk. Across the internet and part of DFW, Sean Shapiro is with us, of course. The other half of this Quarcast duo. Sean, it's been 8 weeks now since the NHL season paused and all the leagues stopped in the various sporting worlds and everybody went on this coronavirus lockdown Kind of hard to believe it's already been two full months. Yeah, I mean, what was it? Uh, was it three days ago? Was officially the the two day? Yep. Not two months. The two uh, the two month anniversary of everything getting shut down, and um, it's something where it's kind of it's it's amazing that I mean it's felt obviously really long, but it's amazing how things that were just three months ago all of a sudden feel like they were like years ago, like. I mean, it's one of those things where we go back and I think we would have been, uh, you, you think about like, for example, just use a big moment. You think about the winter classic, just oh. this, like, like that feels like it was five years ago now. Could have like, been a different was, season. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, we're at a, uh, it's, it's amazing what time has done right now. And obviously we're still kind of, it's amazing. We've had things to talk about and we actually have things to talk about still this week. I mean, some week we'll get to a point where we'll have nothing to talk about, I'm sure, but right now we still do. I feel like that while it may not be relevant to the NHL specifically or the Dallas Stars in particular, that you and I could probably come up with something to talk about for two hours with very little effort. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't think that's an issue. Speaking of which, a quick digression before we get into our main subject matter of this segment. I was doing a... Google Maps search yesterday, looking at something about whether or not at some point this summer, if there's still a pause for a while, if we should try to drive up to Maine to see my family. Because we usually try to visit one of them during the off-season and fly, which Uh is much better. Because to drive to Blue Hill, Maine from here, from Dallas, is 31 hours and 2,000 miles. That is a road trip right there. That is a road trip. Um... Probably to do it in three days, uh, but we'd have to have kids and probably take our four dogs with us. So it'd be quite a. We'll leave the chickens though. But yeah. here's, here's the thing, it got me off on a tangent, and I realized as I'm looking at the map because when you when you Google Map something, uh-huh. you get to see the the full view from point to point. Well, when you go from Texas to Maine, you see a pretty large swath of the country. So it started making me think about, oh, I'll go through this state or I'll go this way or I'll drive up to New York. We'll go this way and see my wife's family. And and that put me down the rabbit hole of how many of these states have I actually been to? And so I, I, I did the list just for fun. I didn't tell you about this in advance. It would have been uh, professional courtesy to let you know so you could have had it right at your fingertips. But turns out I have now been to 32 of the 50 states, all continentally landlocked so i have not been to alaska hawaii and so i'm 18 states shy of the full 50 do you have any idea how close you are um i'm gonna or do you have a reference up so the big thing for me is that there's if i wanted to now look in quarantine traveling is sort of a, a, a frowned upon move let's not just scatter all over the country and see everything and spread the virus but there are a couple of states relatively close to Texas that I could check off if I actually wanted to, including, in a row, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Somehow, I've missed all those so far. 
Okay, so real quick, before I do this, I just pulled up a list of the states, so I'm going to go real quick. Okay, so we're going to um, really kill our chance to be on time today. Just real quick, for, for a definition of... Is there, okay. Are you setting definition of being to the, like? Is there? I don't like, think just standing in the airport counts. Okay. Right? So, like, you have, so for example, I believe I may have done a connecting flight in, at LAX one time. Maybe not. I can't remember. But I would not count that as spending time in California. So okay. if you drove through a state, but you actually had to like get out and you know get something to eat or use the the rest stop or whatever, I think that's. You know, feet on the ground outside okay. of, a, of a terminal, I think, is fair. Now, okay. I don't think there's any states of the 32 that I've done just, you know, like, I've at least spent a few hours in these states. It's not just been a, hey, look, I drove all over the four corners, so I get, you know, Arizona, okay. New Mexico, etc. Okay, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to go through a list. Okay, okay real quick. here we go. This is, okay. uh, by the way, folks, this is not planned. This was for the moment. So we have a ton of NHL news and uh, AHL yeah. notes to talk about, and we're just destroying yeah. all of it because Sean is inspired. <laughs> I am inspired. All right. um, let's see. I'm going to just count places I haven't been. By I the way, Sean, be... this is a great example of why we may never run out of topic material. Yeah. Um, I'm actually just, just going to do places I haven't been. Okay. Uh, it's the same. It'll, it'll be easy. So I've not been to Alaska. Okay. I have not, and I've got a list of alphabetical order here. Not been to Hawaii. Yep. I have not been to. I don't think I've been to Iowa. And clearly, if I was, it wasn't memorable enough. So I'm, I'm gonna haven't been to Iowa. I was, I've been to Iowa with two separate hockey trips. <laughs> UHL. Because we okay. went to the Quad Cities, which is actually Moline, Illinois, but I had I have family that live in Iowa, and so I they went over to uh, they they came over and we went to a place in Davenport, okay. and then the second one was the Iowa Wild. I've been there a few times for in Des Moines for that. Yeah. I've uh, I've driven th- I've driven through Kansas, so that, that will count that. Yep, I uh, yeah, I actually Kansas is on the list of I haven't been to yet. So I've driven through Kansas. Um, I have. I don't know if I've been to Nebraska. Me as well. I don't think Nebraska is one I've been to, so I'm gonna. Um, when the Omaha Oxar Ben Knights were in the American Hockey League, we didn't. I, I was there, but we didn't travel there yet. Yeah. There was a uh, east-west sign of thing, so I never got to hit in Omaha. I have been to I've been to North Dakota. I've been to Ohio. I've been to Oklahoma. I've been to I haven't been to Oregon. Yep, I'm on that as well. I have not been to North Dakota, by the way. I I have not been to either of the Dakotas, so I okay. uh, I've missed out on the Dakota Alley. Yeah. Um, I have not been to South Dakota. Yep. Um, I'm on that. So we have five five in common of not being there yet. Yeah. We've got. And well, then, Sean, you've been to three that I haven't, because you've been to California. Yeah. You've been to Nevada. I think the last one I'm missing is the last one I'm missing here. Just going down the list now, federal quarters. I haven't been to Wyoming, so I, I think I'm at seven that I haven't been to. So right now, one, two, three, four, five, six. You counted Kansas. I counted Kansas because like, if I if yeah. I don't. Oh, because you haven't been yeah. to Iowa and I have. So yeah. some of the ones on my list that I haven't been to: California, Nevada. You've been to Idaho. I haven't been up there. Mm-hmm. Um, Montana, mm-hmm. Utah, 
I haven't done that yet. The, both Dakotas, uh, we mentioned Nebraska. I haven't been to Kansas. Then the three I mentioned before, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And then, strangely enough, the only one uh, in the Northeast is Delaware. You've never been to Delaware? I don't think I've ever been to Delaware. I went to school in Philadelphia. Delaware is like a 20-minute drive. You but, never ended up in like Dover by mistake when you were in school in school in Philly. I think we may have gone over the state line barely, but I don't want to count that. It's not like I actually intentionally went to or through Delaware. No, because you can drive uh, north south by avoiding Delaware. You can, yeah. And that's typically how it goes because ninety five doesn't go through Delaware. Delaware is a funny place. Well, Dover, Delaware is a funny place. Because it has all of these banks, like all these big national bank headquarters, because they've got really good rules and laws for banks. And so you, you walk around there, and you walk around the city there, and you obviously you see like, oh, there's there's a tower for Chase and Capital yeah. One and, and all of these, these banks. And you're thinking like, oh, okay? What? <laughs> um, so. so, and then the last one of my 18 is West Virginia. I've been to West Virginia. There you go. So you're at 43? Yeah. Good God. I got to get traveling. So, obviously a bunch of those I picked up in the past year. Yeah. Years, like California, um, California, Arizona in the past two years, things like that. But we uh, kind of, the I think kind of the combination of having lived on the East Coast and having a family that drove around a lot and then going to school in Ohio and kind of expanding the footprint there and then a bunch of these too where just obviously there's kind of the drive from i made the drive from michigan to texas um drive from michigan to texas at one point that knocked some things off and, yep um and then we've also taken we've taken the drive from like how alabama is on our list like we've done the drive from texas to north carolina before where we've gone gone that way yep um, and um but yeah, there you uh, have it. Not bad. No. So uh, a ten-minute digression of our open of our show. I hope you all enjoyed the fact that Sean and I can get off topic relatively quickly. Um, but one of the things that we wanted to discuss right off the top, so this is essentially off the top, is the fact that the AHL officially shuttered the rest of their season this week, and we knew it was coming. We thought it might be on Friday, but they didn't announce it until a little bit later on, and. Uh, it was obviously after our recording was done. Sean, this is interesting, not because it's surprising, because we all knew it was coming, but because it leads to some interesting questions about what happens next for the American Hockey League. Yeah, that's, that's a big thing, because we all kind of had a feeling it was going to happen. It was one of those where you talk to people, and people who were in an official capacity held their tongues because they didn't want to jump the gun on it, but you talk to players and everything like that, and there was definitely... We're going to have – they're not going to return. And now the big question with the AHL is what happens if the if, if we come back and we're going into November and December and you're still not allowed to have fans in the stands? And I think Dave Andrews – Dave Andrews was pretty op openly about this, outgoing AHL president. Dave Andrews was pretty openly says – there's certain teams who I don't know if they could come back if we don't have fans. I and, think when he says certain, he means more than a couple. Yeah, exactly. And so we're at a point, and, and I had mentioned this in an article a couple weeks back where I've had some players who are of the AHL level players who had 
issued some concerns that they wouldn't be surprised if the NHL went full taxi squad during the upcoming season, just because it's more, it's, it's because the AHL is too much of an unknown and it's too dependent on the gate and and the attendance. Okay. So so this gives me an idea off the top of my head. If that were to happen, then I think they should take a page out of the soccer playbook and have a reserve team game on the same day as the NHL team. So you travel with, I mean, I know that'll be harder to travel with twice the teams. I don't know if they can do that on their one charter flight, but that's what they should have. They should have the JV team play at four o'clock and then the the big club play at seven or something like that, wherever they go. So you get your AHL games in, uh, it would just be in an NHL rink with no fans and twice as much. I know that's logistically a terror, a nightmare, but that would be kind of a, a fun way to keep your prospects playing. It, it's not. I mean, you're not the first person that's actually mentioned that to me. Someone else sent that to me once in text, a, a text message about that idea once. So, I mean, it's it, it's not actually, it's not a crazy idea. I mean, it's, 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 actually, it's actually an idea. If you think about the things, the reason that people push and talk about the AHL teams getting so much closer to their markets now is NHL teams care more and more about having their prospects close, not just for development, but for the salary cap. So we can right. call a guy up and down and everything. I mean, it's, it's an idea that I'm sure GMs would actually love because sure. You could watch figure, their prospects constantly yeah, figuring out the logistics is oh. tough, but I mean, it's something where, you know, it'd be it really might. fun, Sean, because I, I, I don't, I mean, you could fit them on a plane, but not necessarily a uh, double team with all the extra, you know, bigger seats and the comforts of the NHL. Yeah. What if you had the, uh, the short bus proverbially <laughs> where it's like, look, you want to make the NHL team and be on the good plane or you guys get on the, the economy flight behind us. You're flying, yeah, you're flying commercial. So it's like uh, Spirit <laughs> Airlines flight will get you to your destination or you can take the charter flight. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's logistics that have to be worked out, but it's obviously it's not a it's not a bad idea. The other idea I've heard floated around that might just be kind of and this, and once again, these are all just ideas that get talked about. Is one thing is some teams have looked into potentially doing basically bigger and more frequent of the prospect tournaments. You know, like the mm-hmm. prospect tournament up right. in Traverse City. Um, they're getting more and more popular now. There's one in Buffalo. Pretty much every team is in a prospect tournament showcase now. Um, there's a couple that are not, but they're in just kind of head 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 to heads. And so there's been talk of doing something more, maybe doing more of those where maybe you have a tournament for in October where you have your prospects play. You've got a taxi squad going, then they play again in a tournament style thing in December, things like that. I mean, it's funny because um, then you start expanding that, all of a sudden you have a league. Correct. And yeah. then, then you have an AHL again. And obviously the hard part is trying to get uh, this financially solvent without the gate of tickets, uh-huh. parking, concessions, merchandise, etc. Um, so the big no- stories of the NHL rumor mill this week, uh, as we move on from the AHL for now, is just the fact that the return to play committee met twice this past week. And that's a really big surprise. Not surprise. That's notable because I don't think it's happened yet until yeah. now. So I think while there's still no clarity as to a defined come re- return date or a target, it seems like they're ramping up efforts. Now, it could be, Sean, that they're just, there's nothing else to do, so I might as well talk about things. But what has come out of it, at least from the reporting that we've both been reading about 
from various sources, particularly our uh, friend Pierre Lebrun at your publication, is the fact that the although Bill Daly, who is the deputy commissioner of the NHL, said that all options are very much on the table and mu multiple scenarios are still being discussed, it sure seems like the winds of time are turning towards a playoff format of expanded teams not coming back and playing regular season games. And so what, whether the discussion is a 24-team playoff or a 20-team or 60 or whatever it is, it sure sounds like that's where this is leaning at the moment, more so than getting all 31 teams back to play games. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one of those where we've gotten to the point of... One of the big takeaways for me of the 24-team or 20-team playoff or whatever it is, is you're getting the major pushback from... Um, you're getting the major pushback from teams like San Jose and Ottawa. And I mean, like just to give an example of a player, just for example, what motivation does Joe Thornton have to come back and play hockey games for the San Jose Sharks in right. July or, or August or whatever? None, no, none like, at all. Like games where they're not going to matter at all. And you're going to put your, I mean, so that's, that's where we're at. We've reached the point where, there's a bottom that by going to by going to a 24 or a 20 team playoff, it's not really a message to reward teams that we're almost in. It's more of actually almost a reward for lack of a better word. It's almost a reward or like a, a graceful killing of the season for the teams that were so bad that those games would mean nothing. Um, and just it's kind of putting like, putting them out of their misery, isn't it? Exactly. Like the. Like let's use the the New Jersey Devils for example. The New Jersey Devils are out. They're um, they're they're already interviewing new head coaches and everything like that. I mean, did they really did they really care about playing five more games under a head coach that may not even be there with players that aren't going to be there next year anyway? And it's just, um, I mean, you're going to get point. You're also going to have some players who it, now it may not be smart and maybe be frowned upon but if you're a player on one of those bad teams and you've had you look at it and you may wonder why am i going to come back like just just for example like what what benefit do i have of coming back i my my contract is i'm going to be a free agent and whenever we open this after this season and everything like that why would i come back and hurt myself for in a, in a short condensed time period like it's similar to how you see sometimes guys taking bulls off, like after a college football season. Sure, saying, hey, it's, draft. it's just not yeah. worth it to risk my longevity yeah. and future and finances on getting hurt in a bowl game because it's yeah. not for the national so, title. So what the heck? Yeah. 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 So if let's just spitball this real quick for you. Um, 24 teams would presumably be 12 teams per conference. So the cutoff line for the Western Conference would be the Chicago Blackhawks. They have 72 points through 70 games, and the team below them is the Anaheim Ducks. They are a full five points behind them with one more game played. So that there's really no argument there that would say, oh, it's not fair for Anaheim. They're out. They don't have a shot. Mm -hmm. I could see people saying, oh, that's ridiculous. If you had a 20-team or 10 in each conference, then the cutoff line moves up past Chicago and Arizona, and it's the Minnesota Wild, 77 points, in 69 games played three points higher than Arizona with a game less played 
and and a full five points above Chicago. I don't think if they decided to do 20 instead of 24, there's not much that the Coyotes or the Blackhawks really could stand on for an argument there. However, Sean, the, the, my point of all that is the biggest loser of a 20 versus a 24 team format would be the Florida Panthers. It's the only only argument that's, I think, justifiable because yeah. the, the Rangers would be that cutoff team with 79 points through 70 games played. The Panthers have 78 with 69 games played, so they could, in theory, catch and or pass the Rangers with that makeup game. So do you allow, this is really the question, do you allow Montreal, Chicago, and Arizona all to get into this expanded format and that way it's not it's justifiable for the Florida Panthers. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because it's one of those where that at the end of the day the argument the Montreal argument is a fascinating one cuz I think I saw the other day that if you have the play in games um, essentially you would have I think it might be Montreal versus Pittsburgh was one of the setups I saw. And yes, that based and like, on the the standings. Yeah. Yeah, and like a three play, in a three game playoff, and then there is the fear. And now any goalie could do this, but Carey Price is obviously someone who is still looked at as the as the even though the performance may not be what people his maybe it's reputation. That's a whole other argument. But it's a whole se- segment on that. It's, it's, for it's a sure. whole other it's a whole other segment. But people have, will make the case of oh well, is it really fair that? Uh, a team like Montreal that was selling guys off at the deadline now can steal a playoff series from Pittsburgh by Carey Price stealing two games. Now, of course, obviously they sold at the deadline because they didn't think that their mm-hmm. pending UFAs would benefit them not making the playoffs as much as it would be to acquire assets. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I'm actually I'm okay with I can if if the arg- the argument is it would suck for Florida. And I th- but the problem is you have to draw the line somewhere. Somewhere. Like that, that, that's, that's the issue. You have to draw the line somewhere. And the one thing I think you should do, just, just a personal opinion of it, is wherever you draw the line, that's your lottery. That, 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 yes. to, me is, that to me yeah. is your lottery. And yeah, so like if, it should be. And so, and so if, if it's a 2014 playoff, you only have seven teams in the lottery. And if it's a twenty-team playoff, you only have eleven teams. Boy, I think the seven teams would be thrilled to have at their odds because there's fewer teams that could win the lottery. Here's the thing yes, for me, yes, Sean. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm sure someone. The teams that are six and seven would be thrilled. Yeah, but if you're if you're Detroit and you're all of a sudden you're depends on what the odds it, they do. It, in yeah, that, exactly. But so. Here's the thing for me. I'm okay with either format if they. I mean, again, this all yeah. this, we're all past the presumption of that they can find hub cities and it's safe enough and they can logistically pull this together and the players have time to get in shape and they can actually get this done. Put that aside. I'd be fine with letting everybody play, but if you do that with 24 teams, you're going to have a situation where somebody's going to a higher seed's going to lose to a team that didn't make the playoff cut under the normal wild card format, right? Mm-hmm. So Vancouver, Minnesota, Arizona, Chicago in the West, the Islanders, Rangers, Panthers, and Canadians in the East, one of those eight teams is probably going to win a, a best of three, just by yeah. sheer law of averages. And so mm-hmm. when that happens, the team that gets knocked out by one that didn't qualify for the, the normal playoffs is going to be chapped, to say the least. 
So that's kind of why I like the idea of the 20 team. Again, mm-hmm. I you want yeah. you do 24, I'm not going to complain, it'll be fine. But yeah. I like the 20 team cuz it sets up for the two wild card teams currently in the standings and the two below the wild cards having a four team battle. It's like a wild card round to then get to the 16 to the normal playoff yeah. format. And that is kind of what was being suggested earlier before this whole chaos started of just, hey, maybe we should add a couple more wildcard teams just for the fun of early round hockey. Yeah, I, I would, I mean, I'm on board for that. I, I like the 20. I do, I mean, I'm fine with 24 or 20, but I'm fine with, I like 20 more. I also don't think, I think it's the type of thing where this is a, this is a crappy time for everyone. And obviously this, this is not a normal time. And so you say, look, okay, we're going to do, we're going to take the top 20 teams based off point percentage or points. You pick whichever one you want to do. And that's it. You had like, like you had, you have to draw the line somewhere. You have to draw the line somewhere. And to be fair, you had set the Florida Panthers had 69 games to be, to, to get more points than that. It's, it's tough, but that's the line. To me, that's the only team where they really have a legit gripe with this choice. And the thing about that, Sean, is that then you – it's interesting because your, your buddies, uh, Pierre's reporting, said that, you know, look, Montreal and Chicago aren't lobbying for 24. This is These ideas are coming from the NHL office, not yeah. from teams on the bubble. I think, well, the Blackhawks players would love a shot at the Stanley Cup. I don't think the, the organization is in Chicago is really uh, bending over backwards to try to appeal to be in. They have enough – going on with them internally right now well if you're i mean if you're chicago wouldn't you be at a point too just to be if you're thinking realistic longevity wouldn't it be well they wouldn't have traded robin leonard to the vegas golden knights would they no but also it's just to to be is it okay to to maybe steal a playoff round and lose is like if you're chicago isn't your long-term success better to be in the lottery and maybe get a chance at lafreniere well it's a it's a perspective between players and coaches right because the players are going to want to play and have a shot at winning you know we all watch these wonderful michael jordan documentaries and he says you know you play to win you play to make the playoffs you don't play for the draft pick lottery status and that's now management might not agree with the players take on this and you're right they might say yes in our long-term franchise success if we could get this high draft pick it would be better for us yeah. but um so that's a, it's a fun debate to have about how, whether you should do that that seems to be it seems to be trending more towards that than playing regular season games and i think that's the most fair for the teams that are out of it as you mentioned but another thing that Pierre brought up was the fact that they, they are t- trimming down the list of potential hub cities, saying yeah. that there were up to as many as 15 teams that showed interest in being host cities for this foresight plan. And I'm actually surprised, Sean, because to me, I would have thought many more would have been interested unless you just eliminate all the, the big cities that are coronavirus hotspots where they just simply couldn't be realistically considered. Yeah, and there's also places, too, that I think you have uh like so if you i think there's also places where there's a combination of hot spots plus teams that are are not realistic playoff contenders like if you know i think that comes into play too it's like detroit 
or Southern yeah. California or New York well, City? Southern California is one that kind of goes off, it takes itself out just by the even by both by both factors. Right. If you look exactly. At the, at, um, so it's it's interesting to see because obviously we don't have a, a full list and. The other thing that's been interesting about this and all of this is, and Pierre's done a really good job reporting on all of this, but one of the things that I think is fascinating is kind of the terminology that gets used on all of this is um, so much of the uh, of this stuff is not as formal as we keep making it out to be. That's, that's, the, that's the notion that I keep getting when I talk to people. Um, we keep hearing all these there's teams on this list and like it's some formal bid like someone's like bidding to host the olympics or something <laughs> like that it's it's not like that it's very the the the, the bids from my understanding are it's on, on some some teams may have sent a video and a list of hey here's the reasons why other teams may have just called gary bettman and said hey we want on the list it's very it's it's very much a thing that's being driven by the league and the league is looking at options and it's not as much of a well. Here I'm campaigning against this, or I'm campaigning against this city. It's. I think that terminology is something we need to kind of start using a little bit more, and just kind of a little people need to understand that a little bit more. Of, it's not as formal as 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 it's being made out to be. It's very much more a everything's fluid, but these are the ones that kind of are floating there as we look at these options. Well, it's the latest in the NHL. We are going to obviously keep our noses to the grindstone, so to speak, and keep very much in the rumor mill because it's interesting and there's not a whole lot else going on. But we are bringing back the classic game. We had a one-week hiatus there because Sean and I are now starting our look at the 1999 run to the Stars winning the Stanley Cup. Some people, let me tell you some news. I sing a song called the Crude All Blues. We're low on heat, on we're low on gas. And I'm so cold, I'm about to freeze myself. We got the Crude All Blues. Thought the winter time show, getting cold to the bottom of my shoe. Well, my hands are shaking and my knees are weak. But it ain't because of love, it's from the lack of heat. I got the Crude All Blues. All right, back for our classic game review for the first time in two weeks. As Sean and I are now going to start the long task of reviewing the entire 1999 Star Stanley Cup playoff run, partly because it's awesome, and also partly because Fox Sports Southwest over the last few weeks has been re-airing those games. And so this week we decided we're going to focus on round one. Uh, makes sense chronologically and specifically yes. game four which is the final game of the stars edmonton oilers western conference quarterfinal series yeah and i think for this just it's going to be more of with all of these it's going to be more of just looking at probably each round but just yeah the scope of one game because um it, it, it's it's i mean this is the one series we we're able to watch all four games because the stars won all four um <laughs> the other ones we have not like the other ones you lose some context with when you're not able to watch the losses. Like, for example, future rounds against Colorado. Stars lost three games in that. Well, even lost. St. Louis, they yeah. lost games three and four. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, you lose some context. But this one was uh, just kind of to take us into this first round against Edmonton. 
this was a 4-0 sweep. This is game four that we kind of used to focus on. But and game four to me, just kind of looking at it, is the perfect was the perfect encapsulation of the series. It's the final series is 4-0. Edmonton, the Stars won all four games. All three, all four games though are one goal games. And to me, this whole series was a classic example of it was hockey's equivalent of like, you know how when you're watching, I'm going to use a soccer example, but when you're watching a soccer game and the weather gets terrible and it and it benefits the worst team. Yes. This was the indoor version of Edmonton effectively <laughs> trying to create that of we're going to turn the conditions. We're going to, we're going to turn this into as bad of a hockey series as possible. And, and we, we are, the stars were clearly the better team, and if we can do that, maybe we have a chance. And yeah, that's it, what Edmonton really, tried to do. It really wasn't close as far as ma- matching up the teams, but the Oilers tried to physically punish the stars for the for every single game to try to wear them out, and it did work to some degree. Now, as you mentioned, the stars won all the games, and they looked. I think in Dallas, the first two games at Reunion Arena. It didn't look like Edmonton deserved to win either one of those games. They hung no. around. They were on the ropes hanging in. Games three and four in Edmonton were a different story. And the Stars kind of hung on to those because they were battered. Now, if for those that can't remember or haven't watched in a while, they didn't have Darian Hatcher. He was serving his seven-game suspension for the check against Jeremy Roenick that broke his jaw. Pat Verbeek was out with an injury. Guy Carboneau got hurt in games one and two and didn't play in the two games in Edmonton. Grant Marshall was hurt, I think, in game three and didn't play in game four. And then Richard Matvichuk got hurt during the, the the Edmonton portion of the series. They were really battered, and so it actually opened the door for young players like Brad Lukowicz, who made his Stanley Cup playoff debut and looked really good and actually kind of sparked his whole career because of showing he can hang in the playoffs. And even aging veterans like Doug Lidster got a few minutes here and there, which we love. Yeah. I mean, the other the other thing about this whole series, too, and just kind of it's, it's just a perfect example of how a playoff series is so different. Um, <coughs> you look at the uh, – <coughs> sorry. The, uh, the Stars also played Edmonton four times in the regular season, okay? And in the four regular season games, the scores – there was a 2-2 tie – but the other three games was 6-2 Dallas, 4-1 Dallas, 7-3 Dallas. And, they, 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 and that's the type of, in a regular season con- format where you just see a team like that and you can't beat them up over, and things like that, Dallas just, just overloaded them. And so essentially in this playoff series, I think Edmonton probably looked at what happened in the regular season and said, okay, we can't win we can't win this series by trying to play hockey with them. They couldn't they, they, have a track meet. Yep. No, not at all. And, and so they, they essentially, they, they said, okay, they're going to punish Dallas. They're going to, they're going to play physical. They're going to, they're going to do all of this. And on top of that, the other thing that obviously can't be ignored on all of this. And just the thing, one of the reasons these games are even that close in this series is Tommy Sala was great. Oh like, God, was he like, good in this series? Like, like Tommy's at Belfort was good. I didn't think he was even tested much in the first two games in Dallas. But Sallow, I mean, Belfort was getting uh, shot totals faced in the first two games in the teens. We weren't seeing 30, 35, 40 shots. Sallow was getting bombarded, and boy, was he good. 
Yeah, like so for so Salo faced 149 shots oh in the my series. God, in four games, Belfour faced 93. There you go. Games. Yeah, like it was it was one of those where Salo was was that good, and you can't and and if Salo is not that good in games one and two, just to be frank, games three and four aren't that close either because there's that momentum splurge. If Dallas boat. This is Edmonton four nothing five nothing or five one four one in game one and two, game three and four probably aren't even that close. I mean, right? It was, so the big thing for me, Sean, that could have changed this series would be the Stars' power play completely being ineffective for the first three games. They were mm-hmm. at one point in game four they were zero for nineteen on the power play, and that because Edmonton played so physically punishing. They could have really made them pay by scoring. Edmonton took quite a few penalties, and I was yeah. pleased to see this was back when there was a two referee playoff system, but it wasn't two referees during every regular season game. And so they actually, the you know, Ralph and Razor on the broadcast were talking about how certain things were called during that series that might not have been noticed with only one referee on the ice. I think having two referees is a huge game changer in in the NHL for a lot of reasons, and it's good. But I was impressed, Sean, that it wasn't just a classic call one, okay, we got to make it up. Now, there were some makeup calls here and there, but for the most part, Edmonton took more penalties because they actually took more penalties. Yeah, they did. It was, it was, you didn't get as much of the classic evening up. Right. As, as maybe Edmonton would have been hoping for, because that would have been obviously quite a, uh, that could have been quite a difference if it had been called that way. But the but Stars' we, power play just wasn't good enough. Yeah, the Stars' power play wasn't good enough. I mean, it's until Game things, Four. Yeah, like it, it's it's one of those one of the fascinating things about Game Four. Just kind of, I remember looking back in retrospect, and so we talked about Darian Hatcher not being in the uh, not playing in the in this series because he had been suspended in five games for Jeremy, for breaking Jeremy Roenick's straw. At the time, actually, it was it, this number has since been passed, but the uh, the five well, it was five 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 playoff games seven total seven total yeah at the time the five playoff games he was suspended for was actually the nhl record for most games anyone had ever been suspended in the playoffs wow uh and so by winning game four these stars one of the one of the conversations at the time either in more in jest in media circles than the stars ever had but in jest was would it behoove the stars to lose game four would it behoove the Stars to lose Game 4 in the long run so Darian Hatcher's suspension would not go into the second round when they played a team that could actually beat them? Which is ridiculous because it's not like his suspension would have been the entire second round. But I would argue, Sean, that if this situation occurred today, these same discussions would come up simply because everyone's looking for a different angle. Somebody yeah. would have brought it up, mm-hmm. whether it's yeah. whether it deserves merit or not. Yeah, it's and this is an interesting series too. Just uh, it, it would be looking back at the Dallas Edmonton series. It, it is interesting to see what type of impact Hatcher would have had in it because he was the type of player that he was the he was the guy who could have it wouldn't have snuffed out what Edmonton was doing, but they're having Darian Hatcher there as a physical force is going as a physical. Um, Counterforce is much better than as much as we love our buddy Doug. It's much better than having <laughs> having Doug Litster or or Brad Lukowicz there. Yeah, I mean, I think 
part of the like the the, the best well, to me the two best forwards for Edmonton were Ryan Smith and Todd Marchant. Smith yeah. did all his work around the net front. Having Darian Hatcher on the ice could have helped maybe nullify some of Smith's. I mean, Smith rebounds and play around the crease are really really good, and that could have helped. I don't know if Hatcher would have slowed down Marchant because Marchant's speed and tenacity are different. It's a different style, but it could have made a difference. Ryan Smith scored three goals in this series, all of them in Edmonton, and it was all, you know, getting passes in front, redirections, and scooping up rebounds, spinning, and scoring. I mean, he was the net front guy. Yeah, Ryan Smith scored like three goals on six shots in this series. Yeah, because he he wasn't wasn't, pulling the trigger. He was was mucking it up in the dirty areas. Yeah. Um, Sean, one of the things that stood out to me in the whole series was uh, just noticing how aggressive and adventurous Ed Belfour was coming out of his crease to play the puck. He, in the first couple of games of the series, I remember watching, because I haven't watched these in a long time, and yeah. some of them, uh, especially the Edmonton one, I hadn't ever seen. I remember, because it's been a while since I've seen a Belfour game, he was very effective, he was quick, he wasn't Ben Bishop smooth or Marty Turco, but he was snapping pucks and really being involved. <laughs> But then as the series went along, and it's funny because he did a intergalactic kegger a few weeks ago with Razor and Andy Mogan. One of the things he suggested was get rid of the trapezoid because it makes it more fun to see what goalies might do and screw up. And sure enough, in this series, there were some moments that if you're the head coach or you're a fan of yeah. the stars, you go, what are you doing? Get back. Yeah, I mean, Belfort's an interesting case because as just far as the puck handler, because for one, he was a better puck handler than people realize, but that's just by comparison. Right, like, he really because was. Of, because of what Turco was and what Mike Smith even was coming out of Dallas and now Bishop, just by comparison, um, Belfour as a puck handler gets forgotten that he was actually pretty good at puck handling. I, mean, I think I've he talk- typically makes better decisions. He just didn't look as smooth as far as his technique. And he was very good at the stop and get it to the guy in the corner. Let's start an outlet. Those are things that even Marty has talked to me about, just about how Belfour was someone who who was really good at that communication. Mm-hmm. And so, and Marty has given Belfour credit for helping set kind of a stage with the Stars' defense that they were ready for a puck handling goal, which is something that uh, which is something that people kind of forget about. Is you have to. As good as a puck handling a goalie is, it's also so much of it is how they communicate and work with their defenders. And Belfour set a pretty good stage for Turco's success in that as well, just as kind of setting the stage for that. Well, we um, always talked about that with Kari Lettinen of how technically good he was and yet how decisively poor he was. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so. Sean, speaking of which, if Tommy Sallow was the Edmonton Oilers' best player in this series, and I think he was... Um, and he was really one of the focal points of the first three games. I thought Ed Belfour was big in game four, and I thought particularly towards the third period, and first, especially the first overtime. In that first overtime, I thought that the Stars, for the really the first time in the series, looked like the team that was, was second best. I thought they looked tired. I thought the, the physical toll really started to show, and the Oilers were all over them. If Ed Belfour wasn't spectacular they don't win game four and they have to go back to dallas and play another game yeah i mean it's he was he was good um the other the other thing that's fascinating to look back on this time and just look at the the kind of uh 
the usage, and this is very, it's just, it's interesting to see if you if you take a look back in that series, and this is one of the reasons I think Edmonton kind of looked like they were. Edmonton was a little bit more even in the in the way they were using everyone. Yes, a little bit much, more. We were much more actually. Yeah, I mean Dallas. You take a look at this. Did time you see on the ice? time on ice for Game Four? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I did. I did. So, so go ahead. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let you do it. But I saw it too. No, I've already looked at. I've got the. I mean, I've got the whole time on ice for the whole series up right now. I mean, and I was looking at Game Four specifically because they went to three overtimes before Newendike scored on a tip in off his leg and in to win it, uh, and it was late. But what really amazed me, Sean, was that Sergei Zubov and Sean Chambers were in. Zubov was fifty-seven minutes of time on ice in the game, and Chambers was fifty-six and a half. Yeah. The highest player other than the goalies. For Edmonton, I think was Yanni Ninema at about 44 minutes. That is a huge gap. It also shows that the Stars were pretty beat up and some of the guys weren't playing very much. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I think, for that whole series, it was Zubov averaged 34, 35 minutes a game for that whole series. You had, then you had other defensemen who... You know what's insane? When I was watching Game 3, they flashed a, a, a graphic getting ready for the start of the third period. Zuboff had played 22 minutes of the first 40. Yeah. That's crazy. That's over half the game through the first two periods of a playoff game. Yeah, that's, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's Like, that. That's to me, that's yeah. just mind-boggling. Because there were yeah. moments in the series where I think Zuboff looked a little bit pedestrian for him. But yeah. then there were other moments where you saw exactly why he is a Hall of Famer. And... No, none better than watching his pass from uh, on Langenbrunner's tying goal on the power play in the third period. You know they they get a, a zone entry from Derek Plant who loses the puck. They try to clear it. Sidor does a dr- great job to keep it in and immediately snaps it blue. Uh, you know D to D along the blue line and Zubov gets it at the the right corner of the point and goes diagonally to Langenbrunner for a one timer into an open net. And it was just like if he didn't make the decision perfectly in that split second. And if he didn't execute the pass perfectly, that goal doesn't happen. And maybe they don't tie the game and maybe they don't go to overtime. Yeah, he was, I mean, Zubov, there's two things, takeaways, I think. I, I know, I like, for example, I was texting with Josh. Um, I know, for example, I saw his story the other day. Josh Clark is someone who had never seen these games before. Sure. was kind of living it for the first time. And so I think this whole playoff run, re-airing it is probably a nice example for people who had never saw Zuboff play to get an example of why number 56 will be retired next season. The other thing just from this 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 first round that I think is just an unsung hero in all of this with Hatcher's suspension is Sean Chambers is one name that gets kind of forgotten quite a bit just because he wasn't Daring Hatcher, but he was a solid. He was solid throughout this series, and he played. He averaged about thirty-three minutes a game in this series. <laughs> Which is crazy. So, so. He played a ton, yeah. and and he took a beating. There was one play in Game Three, which actually kind of led to Lukowicz getting more ice time in that third period. Uh, Chambers got cross-checked in the upper back by Rem Murray behind the play. It went uncalled, and I mean it could have. It could have decapitated Chambers, and it was it was dirty. It would have been a suspendable hit for sure nowadays. I mean, there were, let's face it, Sean, there was a lot of things that are very, very dicey in that series yeah. that wouldn't be allowed today. I mean, let, let alone the hooking, the slashing, the clutching, the interference, the obstruction. 
there I love the intensity of this series because they really went to war. It was brutal and it looked like they were both both teams were beating each other up. But there are times where some of the skill players could have been open for some more offense and they just got mauled and never got it, you know, they clutch and grab it. The amount of times guys slashed each other on the hands or hooked the elbows. There's no calls on any of this. Yeah, I mean, one of the, there's that, and then you also take a look at, so like you end up looking at how Madonna played in this series, for example, someone who you think about all those chances he could have created and everything like that, and you look, and he only had he led the stars with four points in the series, and that's and I don't all, even think he was very good. Yeah, but uh, that was actually I'm glad you brought that up because that was kind of my point was yeah. uh, it shows the balance of the stars team is that we are watching this with the benefit of hindsight knowing that they're going to move on and win a cup but the top line Hull, Madonna, and Lettinen were not the best line for the stars in fact I thought the guys that were the most effective were Mike Keane and, uh, and then the combination of Joe Newendike and Jamie Langenbrunner Newendike yeah. Newendike was probably their best player mm-hmm. he was fabulous. Newendike. Yeah, Newendike was probably their best player in this round. I would agree with that. But, like, that's just, I mean, I, we'll get into more of this sort of theme later of the madonna hull Lettinen line maybe nullifying another team's top line and then they win the matchup battle with lines like Newendike or the Benoit Hogue group. But, yeah. but it's amazing when you think about it. With all the guys injured, with the fact that their top players weren't necessarily clicking on all cylinders, their power play was awful until Game 4 and yet they swept Edmonton. It just shows how much better of a team they really were. Yeah, and, and essentially, I mean, let's just just take it to the end here just to wrap it up. You go to – where it's it's in triple overtime, and I know you just watched it this morning, so I'll let you kind of go through the, to lead us off on that. Just You go through triple overtime. There's been – Edmonton has been pushing. There's been some chances, and then in the end, it's the, – the Stars – it's in triple overtime. You get the another game-winning goal for Dallas. <laughs> the one before we talk about the goal, I just wanted to give a stick tap to Ed Bell for for his save at the midpoint of the first overtime. Mm-hmm. Goes post to post, Falloon threw it across the crease, and Kilger's on the back door, and he's just about. It wasn't quite a two-pad stack, but he made. I thought they were going to score. I knew that they weren't, but in my you know my mind, I'm going, oh god. This is game over, and that saved overtime. Now, there were a couple of great other chances on Salo, but to me, that was probably the save of the night for Belfour. So kudos to him. And then as you get into that, I mean, we're talking late third overtime. It was the longest game for either franchise, which was pretty cool when you're at a point where you're you're setting marks for both teams. Yeah. And I guess look, game three stood out to me, Sean, because – Edmonton had a legitimate beef that they had a couple goals disallowed that I thought were maybe marginal at best and probably should have counted, including the one where Belfour ventured out of his net, threw the puck away, and then got scored on while he was still out of the crease. There was some contact with him, but I I thought it was iffy. So to then get to that shot from the blue line that went in off the leg of, of Neuendijk, he wasn't in the crease. He didn't kick it in. Yeah. I was just glad that it was over and it was clean enough that it wasn't a disputable goal. Yeah. But that was it, right? It wasn't Tyler Sagan against Montreal exciting overtime goal. No, but it was, no, no. It was a throw, go to the net and the puck went in. Yeah. So uh, in all, we know they're going on to bigger and better things, but it was a good series. And I think 
that for fans just watching this for the first time, Sean, they probably don't quite understand why this was such a great series because they don't remember the years past where the Stars and Oilers met in the playoffs. Yeah, the context is important. And so, um, but yeah, that was a... Uh... It was it was a sweep, but it was a battle of a sweep, and it sets up uh, sets up next week. So next week we're going to move on and talk about the Stars and the St. Louis Blues, which seems to be a regular occurrence in the playoffs these days. We'll get to that in our classic rewind next week. But up next, it's time to dive into some captain talk. Everybody, listen to me. I'm your captain, I'm your captain, though I'm feeling mighty sick. Okay, for our third segment of this week's episode of the Quarkast, we're going to dive a little bit into something that Sean has been spending months working on. This week he did a series talking about Dallas Stars captains, Darian Hatcher, Brendan Morrow, and more recently, Jamie Benn. Um, kind of focus on those three, not the others. The the Mike Madonna captain time. Joe Newendike wore the C against the Edmonton Oilers for that playoff series. But this is really about the three guys that have long tenure. Now there was of course captains prior to Hatcher as well, but really the three most tenured guys, I think, is what you were going for, right? Oh, and not yet, and not even, and this was just kind of Dallas Stars history. Um, when Dallas first moved to, when the team first moved from Minnesota, Mark Tenorti was the captain for one season, and then the next year, um, Hatcher and um, uh, Neil, Neil Broughton shared the captaincy and before Hatcher took over. And so it was kind of a, this was the big story that I had been working on for months on this was this big feature on Jamie Ben, just as far as who is Jamie as a person kind of kind of trying to cut into some of the layers of who this guy is, because as much as Jamie is one of Dallas's and DFW's most tenured athletes, he's done a ton to keep his personality hidden in a public persona. He want he does as much as possible. It's not like Tyler Sagan, who is very open about um, going onto the radio all the time and, 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 and uh, when Tyler Sagan does something in the community, we get a press release about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's no, just... No, but there's a lot of coverage when he goes to play at the boys and girls clubs or build a ball sport yep. court and wouldn't... I, I, we'll get into the Jamie fully, yep. but wouldn't it be interesting if Tyler Sagan was entering his 10th season or completing his 10th season with Dallas, was the captain... Do you think that the... I mean... If you ask a random Dallas-Fort Worth fan about Dallas Stars, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan are the first two guys that are going to come to mind. But do you yeah. think Sagan would be elevated to closer to, not necessarily at the end of his career, but would he be more in the Dirk or Tony Romo level or you know that kind of thing just because he's so, so much more media-friendly? Is that fair um, to say? Yeah. I mean, I think he's at a... I don't. I don't think Dirk. And, I don't think that's a fair. I, maybe not, but you know what I mean. Like more of a a a, a well known commodity. Oh, hundred percent. Like I think. Um, I'm not trying to say that he'd be yeah. necessarily on Dirk or Roger Staubach level, but yeah, no, no. But like he he is at Tyler is someone who 
the Tyler's brand is big to him, and that's that's something that he is big on building it, and he's worked on building a brand. Um, I think if you were to if you were to ask a random DFW person to who's the first player you think of with the Dallas Stars, I think a lot of people would say Tyler Sagan first. Um, so I don't know for the fact on that, but I, I think it's just it's just a, I'm just conjuring a guess here. Um, and so it's we have that. And so the point, the point of kind of doing this story was you look at what, who Jamie is and how he hides everything. And I had actually turned in the story that ran on Wednesday on Jamie about three, about three months ago, I had turned in a similar story that had a bunch of that stuff, not similar, but I still kind of the ground floor on a bunch of that story. I turned in and I turned it into my editor, Mike Pellucci and Mike gave me a call and said, Hey, why are we, why are we, why aren't, why aren't we going deeper on this? Let's just. Let's go deeper on this and just to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit, our original plan was to use that Jamie Benn story as kind of a lead into the playoffs. That, that was kind of our original plan. Obviously, that isn't something that, that happened and we don't know what's going to happen with that. And so we decided, okay, why don't we try and do something else and build up into this a little bit differently? And so that's kind of where the idea for, well, let's look at the captaincy history let's kind of dive into that and that's kind of where this all came from and that's kind of how this all this idea all came together basically building around that big jamie ben story that was kind of our um centerpiece on wednesday there um but i mean it was to me there are so many similarities. you look at what the star's captaincy has been defined as and it's been more and more defined as a role of a leader that May is is more and more of the lead by example than lead lead overly vocally. They talk, they definitely speak, they definitely have a voice, and they, that's not saying they don't. But it's more and more of I'm going to set the tone with my actions and my play, and by 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 being a leader in that way, as opposed to having to be the the the, the rah rah cheerleader during right. the intermission. Um, Hatcher, for example, went. Through, through a lot of that time, you had those veteran players where Guy Carboneau was more vocal. You had a, you had a bunch of other guys that were way more vocal than he was. Newendike was more vocal. Uh, Brendan Morrow even said to me, "He probably there's probably people who wish he was more vocal, but he he relied on other guys and he led by example." Jamie, for a long time, we know Trevor Daly and Vern Fiddler were more of the voices he used. Even now, this season, um, we'll see Blake Como step up and be the guy that talks more. Um, so it's kind of. Then those so those three to me kind of define this is what a stars captain has become. It's the brand of the stars captaincy of lead by example and and kind of taking a look down this and kind of the the three stories. Moro is kind of the lineage that connects everything because he learned from Hatcher, passed some lessons on to Jamie, um, and 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 was there for for some things and then and then and then obviously Jamie and then Hatcher is the one that's interesting because I think. The case, one of the cases that I, I made this week and how we started this whole thing off is how it's fascinating to me how, looking back on it now, how much Hatcher's legacy in Dallas, he doesn't really have the legacy in Dallas that he probably should. And you and I have talked about retired numbers versus Ring of Honor and everything like that. And I'm, I'm, not, and I'm not even trying to have that argument. My, my point is, and I, I think number two should be retired, but the point here isn't to argue whether it should be retired or not. The point is that Darian Hatcher, you have people who look back at the teams of the 90s, and unless they watched it in person, you've got people who they think of Yuri Lettinen, they think of uh, Mike Madano, they think of 
they think of even Craig Ludwig because of he was a little bit more visible the past couple of years on the broadcast and everything like that. And Darian Hatcher somehow gets kind of forgotten in the legacy of all of this, even though he was the captain that when that team won. It's and I thought that was kind of a fascinating thing in hindsight to look back on. Well, he's just not very visible in Dallas these days because he's yeah. working in other capacities outside of the city and doing other things. But uh, I I don't totally agree with that in the sense that. When you hear people talk about what's missing for the Dallas Stars, one of the first things you see, now maybe this is a Twitter thing, but I see a lot of, man, we need a guy like Hatcher, right? They want that physical, punishing, mean-type defenseman that really batters the opposition, and that's, and that's something that I feel like I've heard a lot in six years we're here in Dallas. No, but and that's, that's what you get from people who watched him play. The more yes. so, the yes. point is... More so from the point is that his legacy has never been carried on to people that people that have that have started watching the stars in the last ten years and things like that. I mean, you go to you go to Montreal, you go to Detroit, you go to um, you go to someone like, for example, in Arizona. I'm kind of intentionally picking a market that doesn't have all this history. Um, you go to Arizona. 10 years from now, people will still know who Shane Doan is and it'll still be part of the legacy of the franchise sure. because because they've honored him properly. I don't think they've done that properly with Darian Hatcher in Dallas. And that's just kind of goes into a fact of there's not a ring of honor or a hall of fame. And the other thing, too, there is a star center rink named after him. I know, it, I know, but it's, no, a, but, no, but no, no, I think, no. but that's the point is that there are very few names in the stars alumni roster that garner the distinction of being named for a rink of the ones they've built. Hatcher's one of them, but he's not in that same class as far as the visibility and the recognizable nature of guys like Moro and Turco because those guys live here and they're around a lot. And the other thing too, though, is their numbers too. The yes. other thing too is so, so what is what they've done with their numbers too. So for example... Number 35 and number 10 are not retired. I don't think they should be retired. No. But number 10 is a number that goes to, I know people aren't going to like this, but Corey Perry is a veteran who has earned the right to get that number. Number, t- number 10 has been has gone to Patrick Sharp. Number 10, since Brendan Morrow has left, number 10 has gone to a player that is has status, for lack of a better yep. word. No, you're right. No, Martin, number 30, Martin Hansel was on that too. Yeah, yeah number 35... Number 35 was a number that has it, – it's been – Mike McKenna wore it when he was here and Anton Hudobin, but it's been it's been a number that has been revered as a goalie number. It is still like, oh, well, 35. Number two was – has not – has been only used by defensemen, and as much as I enjoy some of these human beings, the fact Yurki Yokopaka is wearing number two – Kind of starts to lessen the uh, the the impact of what number two meant because number two in Dallas since the since the franchise arrived here meant number you 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 were look you had you kept your head on a swivel because number two was could if you came over the blue line with your head down you were going to get planted and that's what that number meant and they've kind of by making it so publicly available and basically making it kind of the third pairing defenseman's number for lack of a better word has really turned it into more of a, you know what? It's number two. And it, it, that, and like, so if number two had just been, if it had been reserved for, if Alexiak had got it when he got, when he came in here and it was, Oh, here's a first round pick 
this is the type of this is this is the type of person who's worthy of wearing number two. Uh, like if if that was the type of people you were giving the jersey to, it would hold some reverence. And I think they've just kind of diluted all value of what the number meant. So Sean and I have had this discussion off air before. Uh, several times, in fact. And so to not completely hijack the segment, I'm not going to give, give all my responses to everything he just said because otherwise it would turn from a captain's segment to a retired number, usage number, ring of honor but, thing. No, 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 but the point, but the but point, no, I even, But you're right, but right. So, and, and I think that even is, get, is, the point is getting lost that the way that number has been treated has also lowered the the recognition and the remembrance a bit of Hatcher and his legacy because of that. Yeah, and, and this even goes to the point. One of the arguments you and I always have is, I, I, I like retired numbers, but you're like, I want to see, okay, well, this team had, this number 10 is famous for this team. I want to see who the next number 10 is. I want to see the right. person who well, does that. For and, Cowboys and, fans around here, don't yep. you want to see who's going to be the next one wearing the 88 jersey in, uh, in the wide receivers mix? And that's what you could have done with number two. You could have been more selective with who we're giving this number to and things like that, and they just didn't do that. Part of the so. problem may have been, and I'm not trying to defend or, or stick up for anything, there are less defensemen than there are forwards. The prominent D-men may not have wanted number two. They didn't have to want it, but that right. doesn't I mean, mean but you have to give it but that, that also means doesn't mean you have to give it out. Right. No, I understand that. So, so the to bring this back to the other point was we're yeah. talking about Jamie Benn. It's over the years, you and I have both fielded quite a bit of discussion points, questions, and fan responses, sort of wondering whether or not Jamie Benn is a good captain. And the reason I think a lot of that comes out is they is people see how he conducts his media interviews and goes, oh, he doesn't say anything, he's boring, he shows no energy whatsoever. And then, Sean, you over the years have written multiple articles about, you know, because people were saying, why is he the captain? Look, he's he's okay on the ice now, but he's not what he used to be. Or, you know, he doesn't show any enthusiasm when he talks to the press. And then you had articles with players or former players saying he's one of the best captains we've ever seen. And I remember you interviewed Mike McKenna, who's definitely been around the block. And he was very adamant of how good of a captain Jamie Benn is. And we're all sitting here going, none of us see this. Now, the reason is, and, and I think this is probably the to what I took away from your piece as one of the most important distinctions is to show underneath the layers of guard and protection what he's really like to the people that he, he shows it to, which are his teammates, the coaches, the inner circle of the Dallas Stars. He doesn't let the outside in on that very much at all. Yeah, he doesn't let many people in, and... He is very, he's guarded about it. And then the other thing about Jamie, though, is but once you're in his circle, he will go to bat for you. He, he will do anything for you. That is, that, is, that is who Jamie is. He is the person who, if you need someone to call at 3 in the morning, um, he's the person that will answer your phone call. If you need someone, if you need... If you're having this, if <laughs> that's you're, the old line on the ticket that said which ticket host would you call if you had to dispose of a body at three in the morning <laughs> I don't know. if uh, I know how to derail your comment comments but and the, he, he's the person who if you he also understands what his teammates are going through I think that's a big thing too he has a big understanding of what the other humans on his teams are going through and what they 
they what they need and things like that. Um, you talk to you've talked I've talked to players, I've talked to coaches who they'll be going through a rough time in their life for something, or they'll be going and some things sometimes are rougher than others that I'm not ranking things like that, but where you where Jamie has just been there for them. And it's as simple as being there or taking that small step. And that's the things that Jamie does for the people within his circle, within his group. He doesn't, he doesn't like to flaunt that. He doesn't even, the only reason he ever talks about it himself is sometimes in the locker room, kind of the tone you get from Jamie talking to players and people is, is the tone of Jamie is, guys, I'm here for you. I'll do anything for you. And that's the only reason he'll talk about it is because he wants to make sure people know that who care about him. He doesn't want you or I to know that because we're not in that group. And doesn't He doesn't care to share that. But I'll yes, tell you, exactly. that one of the reasons why you and I have seen these things over the years is from talking to other people, other yeah. players that have been his teammates or even his competition. That's why that the discussion with Blake Wheeler on that NHL Zoom call was so interesting was because it gave you a snapshot of what it's like to play with or against Jamie that he's never going to talk about unless prompted because the other guys brought it up. Yeah. Oh, it was it's 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 interesting to look at and it's also interesting too as far as one of the things about Jamie and, and he gets involved in the, the way he gets involved in the community and stuff like that is because you think obviously the captain is many in many ways a position of the public face to the community. And for as much as Jamie does do things and he goes to the hospital business and everything like that, he's never been one to make a big deal about it. It's something where... He's not looking uh, for the PR publicity. No, he's not. But the one thing he is looking for, and just kind of the one of the examples that I've talked to other players about, is they see what Jamie does in the community and it sets an example of, hey, this is what we're... This is, this is what Jamie does. We should do this too. And now... Give John Klingberg all the credit in the world for his Klingberg's Kids program and everything like that. But I remember I've talked to John about how seeing what Jamie did was it was one of the reasons. Sure, he wanted I to emulate him. him. Well, yeah, one of the reasons I want to get involved. And and look, and then, he does it. Then you see a guy like Tyler Sagan doing it. Stephen Johns is involved mm-hmm. with things. Uh, I remember Vern Fiddler had a big thing going yep. on with Fid's Kids. I'm not saying Cody Eakin was involved with it a lot here. I'm not saying that all those guys did it just because of Jamie. But when the captain is doing that, the guy that's getting paid a lot and getting high, is highly visible, I think that really does set a very important tone with the with the whole organization. Yeah, and I mean to, to kind of wrap up this whole conversation on Jamie and just kind of the point that one of the things that I hope people take away from this story, and I don't and. To me, whether whether someone thinks Jamie's a good captain or not, that's fine. That's their own life. They can live, whatever. But to me, I hope that this is the definitive piece of if anyone ever questions, oh, well, would the stars – I would hope this would be the answer that oh, – the only answer I ever need when we sometimes get the post-game question or I get the Twitter question of, oh, well, do you think the stars would change the captain? I don't think Jamie is, is, is a good captain there. I mean, I think – This should that squash the, that. Yes. Right. I would, I, would, I would hope that's the case, and I would hope that – um, it's something that I think hopefully enough people read it, but it's so. It'll be interesting to know if Jamie actually read it or not. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter because it's yeah. not about that. But no, it's really it was it was well done. Uh, obviously, it's not as deep as I would like because it's hard to get that deep. But that's just me being very very 
picky about and having a high standard of that. But you went probably about as deep into the pool as you're going to be allowed to for now. So I applaud you for a wonderful article as we transition now to the lightning round. for the lightning round. Sean, I won't ask you to do another drum solo, but let's get right to it here as we've been having a good time. We had an early question coming a few days ago. We encourage that throughout the week. This is why using the hashtag works so well. Before we do get to the questions though, Sean, I did want to address something. If anyone listens, some of our Quarkast fans have said, God, I love the show, but I wish you guys were on Spotify or I wish you were on another platform because of SoundCloud. And so I just wanted to say, and I hope people realize this, that using SoundCloud, we also are on iTunes. So if you have the iTunes podcast app on your phone, that's an easy way to do it if you want to, or actually use the SoundCloud app, download that. It makes a huge difference. If you just click on the the link that Sean or, or myself post, then you you get a thing where if you're if you're listening on your phone, let's say, if your phone goes dark or the screen locks, the audio stops and you have to go back to the beginning. It's infuriating. You could never get through the episode. Download the app. You can play it. You can close your phone. It still runs. So if you don't have the SoundCloud app or the iTunes podcast app, which should be standard if you have an iPhone, that's the best way to listen to the Quarkast. Yeah. Do you agree? Anything to add on that? I, I, I agree. Or if, if you can, uh, there's also, it is an, it is an Apple I, uh, podcast and everything yeah. like that too. So. Okay, so let's go to Luke, who started his questions out about four days ago. Early Quarkast. I almost said Carcast. We're not in the car yet. Nope, not yet. Early question. Which one of you picks the songs between segments? The choice of Walking on Broken Glass at the end of last week's episode was inspired. I'll let you take that away since you're the <laughs> producer. So, yeah, that would be me. Um, I always encourage Sean to... Give me ideas if he has them, but that was that was all me, and I I'm just giddy because I appreciate when somebody notices that I have a special touch on that. That the whole point of those is to try to add a little bit of uh, whim or humor to it. So Luke, thank you for noticing. I did not pay him to say that though, Sean. Yeah. Oh, uh, good. You know, I'll also give. I guess Luke sets a new record for the earliest question of the week. So so far, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I guarantee you that now that we have that mentioned somebody is going to try to beat that by probably writing in a question later this afternoon i will say by writing an earlier question you guarantee not guarantee but you there is a much higher odds of it getting questions that's right the last minute questions but by the way i even forgot to tweet out the last minute question uh today we sometimes don't get to that because it's like oh we've done 35 40 minutes i think we need to cut this off yeah so early questions do help you get in there. Yeah, another another uh, another two early questions we have for uh, the 
before they even before you even need to call for questions from Chef Chelios. Um, regardless of what happens for the remainder of this season, who are the free agents that the Stars will lose next season, and what do they have to do to upgrade their team? Um, just as far as the free agents, obviously, the you talk about ones that are like unlikely, likely not coming back. You're looking at Roman Polak. You're looking at Andre Sekera. You're looking at Corey Perry, and then you're also looking at Matias Yanmark is in that discussion too. Um, Anton Hudobin is the big question mark free agent. It's because the biggest one. It's the biggest one, but he, I would bet, I would bet pretty solidly that Anton Hudobin is back in Dallas. Just when you look at the goalie market, you look at what's going to be available, and you look at what this pandemic has done to the salary cap. Um, I think Anton Hudobin will be back in Dallas next year. Um, and uh, I guess the other second part of his question was, what do they have to do to upgrade their team? I mean, the one thing they need to do just to upgrade their team is they need to find the solutions to start kind of it, – it's they need, to, they need to create some more offense, and they need to realize – they need to figure out, do they have the solutions in-house? And then they also need to figure out, is Thomas Hartley ready for the NHL next year? Because, see, that's, that's a big question. Right. The good news is that with the return of Stephen Johns, that – having Harley play or not is not a top four discussion right now. Now he might get to the point where he plays his way into the top four and that's a good problem to have. But really, if you're talking about working in a young prospect into your third pairing or your six slash seven spot, you're in a good position. You're not going, because at the beginning of this year we said, well, with Steven Johns out, the stars need to trade for a top four guy. They need to bolster that. Well, they don't right now. So to me, the biggest, we already talked about it. The Anton Hudobin thing is probably, is not probably, it is the biggest offseason thing to start because if they get him to re-sign, then goaltending is, is short up, done. Now you worry about, does Harley make the team? Does Ty DeLandria make the team? But you're talking about uh, guys that are trying to get into the club on the fringe and then move up. The only other thing I would think of, Sean, is what are you going to do to replace... Are you going to try to re-sign Yanmark? Are you going to let him go? Are you going to replace him and Corey Perry with with who, whom are you going to try to do that? Because that could help adjust things. Or, as you said, is it in-house? Is Jason Dickinson ready for a, a full-time second-line role? Does Denis Gurionov finally find the, the clicking of he's a top six forward and not a, a swing guy back and forth? Yeah, I mean these are great things to have, but obviously a playoff run is going to make some ch- decisions too. I agree. Um, the other thing, just parting shot on that one, just as we know, there's some of these guys who are free agents who could be retiring too. Like yes. for example, Roman Polak. Who knows whether his career will be even he'll play in the NHL again? Who knows? Um, so uh, next one, no, last one. Before we call for question is. Uh, Crawdaddy, I have a hypothetical question for my favorite Stars podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. You get to go back in time and watch one hockey game. doesn't have to be in your lifetime. What game would you pick? Wow. Um, I guess my first question would be, is this watching it in person or just watching it on television? I'm guessing it's in person. I'm going with watching it in person because otherwise we could just go back and find this game. In a, uh... I mean, I, I have so many thoughts. I'd love to see Gordie Howe play in person. I've never done that. Um, I'd love to go see, like, 80s Gretzky, you know, seeing those those 80s Oilers teams because that would be really fun, and he was so dominant. Uh, a young Mario Lemieux would have been really fun to, to see more of. 
But, you yeah. know, Sean, the one that stands out to me, and I, maybe just because it's an iconic moment, I think I would have liked to see the Bobby Orr Stanley Cup goal, the flying through the air. That'd be pretty fun to see live just because he's – I grew up a Bruins fan. He was the most iconic player in Bruins history, clearly. And, boy, would it be fun to see him skate at his peak live. I really would like to see just how good he was. I would – so the game I would like to see – um, I was thinking about this um, is and I've mentioned this game before and I've, I've actually watched this game um, I've watched this game the replay before in the past but I would love to see in person is is the you go back to 75 and it's the Red Army uh, the Red Army team versus the Montreal Canadiens on New Year's Eve and it's a 3-3 game it's a, it ends in a tie it's a 3-3 game and Montreal goes and wins the cup later that year and it is one of the Great goaltending performances of all time by Vladislav Tretiak, and that's part of part of me wants to see that just kind of from a goaltending. You just nurse. gave me my answer. What? Miracle and ice game. Yeah, that's. I, I would, mean, that's. I want to be in Lake Placid watching USA versus the Soviets live for mm-hmm. all of that. Tretiak, all the great 1980 teams. I wasn't alive yet by about uh, seven or eight months, I think. But that that would be the one. Now that I think yeah. about it, that would be no. the Lake Placid game in 1980 would be incredible. Yeah, I would be. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Justin, who said he forgot the hashtag, so I'm going to have to dig in a little bit um, on – he had a mention, so let's see if I can find Justin's thing because he did actually mention the hashtag. So there he is. Is the window for the Stars to win a cup in the next – two to three years or can nil or management somehow manipulate everything to make it more like four or five? Um, I mean, I think this, I, I think that's too fluid of a question, honestly, because I think it's, I mean, the answer is yes, you can stay. I think the stars are in a, when we talk about windows, in my view, the stars are in the kind of emerging of two windows right now. There is a window of Jamie Ben and Tyler Sagan post prime still, uh, still high-level players window. And then you're moving, and it moves into the fact you have Miro Hishkin, the fact you have Ropa Hansi, the fact you have Denis Gurionov. I think that creates a window right now for this team to have the pieces to be a contender, to, to, be, a, to be able to try and still win a Stanley Cup four or five years from now. So I think you have just having those pieces alone. Obviously, the big question is going to be, just and this comes back to, is do you have the goaltending to be able to win a Stanley Cup in four to five years? Is Ben Bitt, is, yeah. is, 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 the, is the succession to Jake Ottinger successful? If not, is there a is free the agent out there or a yeah. trade? If, yeah. So that, that, that to me is the, is the biggest question. That, that is the reason, um, that is the reason that you just look at the present as more solid than the future just because you don't, there's unknown factors. Chew, but, on, chew on this, Sean, you mentioned yeah. Corey Perry earlier. That yeah. was something that uh, Bob Murray and the Anaheim Ducks did really well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Perry and Getzlaff were kids in 2007 when they won the Cup. And they were not the primary pieces or core of that team. But they transitioned eventually to those guys and had a decade's worth of playoff success and regular season success. Now, they didn't win the Cup again, but they were a perennial division winner in the Pacific. They mm-hmm. were always a factor in the playoffs. And that's really what you hope for. Now, you want to try to at, turn those into Stanley Cups, but let's face it, that's really hard to do. So how do you get yourself to the dance year after year after year and win divisions a lot? 
that's what the stars have to do, right? Because Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, John Klingberg are not going to be the core in eight or nine years. So how do you turn this to becoming very quickly Miro Haskinen's team? Yeah. How do you, you know, is Rope, or, or I should say, are Rope Hintz and Dennis Gurionov the next wave, or is it more of a Dickinson-Delandria kind of thing? And I think you have to have that fluid nature of few guys in, few guys out, because that's the nature of the salary cap era. But you really have to be able to define your core. Obviously, as you mentioned so aptly, goaltending is a big, big part of it. Yeah. And I think they have the pieces for a core that has a better window. I think I, I think Robertson and Delandria, I think, can definitely be part of that core for sure. Um, Harley, I think, could is, 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 a, is a big piece there. It's just, it's going to be how well how gracefully do certain players age right. how well do certain players it's just it's kind of a crossing of timelines and see how seeing how they work i don't think i'll put it this way i don't think the um i don't envision the stars being anywhere near what in anaheim or detroit is or anything like that like i like i don't think I don't think we're at a point right now where we've got where they they'll be at, they'll be at a spot where they'll be a bottoming out anytime soon. I'm not I agree way. with that. I think yeah. they've gotten a good balance of of yeah. guys in that regard, and and they went through some years with a really young defensive core, and they should be able to reap the benefits of that for the next few because now that young group, the Klingberg, Lindell, Johns, I, I put Miro in that, but he really was it was before him. Now they're established guys they're getting into the peak prime and maybe starting to push towards the upper edge of the prime with some of them well yeah i don't know if that's fair to say that Klingberg's there yet but the point is is that they're in the they are right in the window for sure for with that group um jared asked a question that we already touched on in a whole segment but basically said he really enjoyed your article about the captain series or articles and wanted you to know uh if you thought the two questions were the were the stars a contender during Morrow's tenure, and then uh, talking about he felt that Hatcher was somewhat forgotten, and why is that? We talked about that. Do you think the stars were a contender during Brendan Morrow's tenure? Uh, they were not for the entire tenure. Um, they were, they were because Brendan Morrow. You have to remember Brendan Morrow. I mean, I guess the other question is how he's defining tenure because Brendan Morrow played for the 2000 Stanley Cup team that lost in the finals. That's right. And so, so if we're talking about tenure of just as a player, they 100% were. If we're talking about the tenure as his captaincy tenure, they were a good team. Were they a contender maybe a couple of the early years of his captaincy, but not near the end? Um, it will be interesting to see. Let's move on. Uh, Christopher wants us to give him some hot takes and bold predictions. Um, this is going to drag out longer than you think this current situation with the NHL. Yeah. And I, I think that the problem is, I don't think that's, that that shouldn't be that bold. No, it's not. That's but here's, yeah, yeah, here's yeah. what I'm saying on that. Cause I don't really have any particular yeah. bold predictions out there. I think that the NHL's biggest conundrum this summer is because I think this is going to last longer. The, the coronavirus problems than they want it to is, can they get a playoff in, before they get to that drop dead date of we need to start next season before it gets into too far to start next season. Yeah. So I think they'll do it, but I think it's going to be weird. All right. So Florian writes in Dom's model from the athletic has Lindell close to replacement level. I agree with it, 
For me, he is a PK specialist with an average five-on-five value. How do you stand between Dom's model and some people's very high opinion of Lindell? Um, I stand between, actually. <laughs> I think I think there is. I, I think I think Essa Lindell is. I think I don't think he's close to replacement level player. Obviously, I know what Dom's model represents and looks at, and I and. Um, to me, it's one of those where I, I disagree with the numbers on that point. And that's okay. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a. I think Dom's model can be very valuable in many cases, and I think analytics are very valuable. I just, to me, I think Esselindell is is more is above a replacement level player. I also don't think he is a. I also don't think he's as high as some people rank him. I think I think Essa is a player that is a very good fit with a with another puck moving defenseman he moves well enough to um moves well enough to be a secondary puck supporter i don't like the i don't think essa can anchor his own pair i don't think essa can be the if you're talking about a top four defense pair i don't think i don't think essa it can just be essa with a replacement level player he, he needs someone else who can be the primary puck mover i think he's get, he's gotten better moving the puck but i think it's because he's able to do it in the secondary role. Here's a thought um, I had about him. Do you compare yeah. him to a larger, more physically imposing version of Nicholas Jalmerson? Um, Which is a yeah, clear yeah, top that's... four defenseman, wonderful, important part of your team, but Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook were the guys that were considered the anchors of their their pairings. Yeah, I think that's a fair. I think that's actually somewhat, I think that's rather fair. Um, I think, yeah, I, I don't think, I think Essa gets, as Essa to me is divisive and, and by being divisive, you either have to fall into from a social media world. Now you either overly defend him or under defend, or you either overly defend him or over attack him. I would be and more th- in the defend than attack mode for him, which is but, kind of coincidental because yeah, that's exactly but, what he does. Yeah. But and I but I I think it, the the issue is he falls right in the middle. I think there are some good points, and there are some good points that yep. people make who think Essa plays too much, and there are some people and there are some people who undervalue what Essa does as well. So I think it falls in the middle, in my view. Um, so I, I think um, I mean to, the other thing is about it. To, he is re, he is a really good penalty killer too, and that's the other thing too that I think we sometimes forget how um we sometimes forget about how tough how difficult penalty killing is i know it doesn't require all of the movement and i know it's something where um you guys have people you, you don't have to have the move as i know but Esselindel is one of the better penalty killing defensemen in the nhl and i think there's an incredible value on that and i also think that uh we sometimes for we sometimes forget about those level things. I like I take it back to I had someone ask me recently of well what about Radic Fox? Do so they have the replacement in house? Do they have the replacement in house? Just just I'm just using this as an example. Someone's like oh well they have the replacement for Radic Fox in house. It's Jason Dickinson. Are you sure Jason Dickinson could do what Radic Fox did? Are you under like I think S right. is similar similar. In I that agree. Way I don't think the stars it, have a player that could take S's role and uh, and. Completely. Now, there's some guys yeah. that can play parts of it, but no, you're right. He's, but he, I think he's really important to it. It's the same reason I think that you can't have all Madonos on your team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Max writes in based off if the season was over right now, 
who are the losers with the NHL trade deadline, assuming the league does nothing and the player contracts are over right now? Um, I don't, I don't have the whole list in front of me. But I mean, anybody that made a trade to add at the deadline would be, it would be, a, I mean, again, is it, are they losers or are they just, it doesn't benefit them at all? Yeah. I mean, they're just like losers. I mean, I guess for the people, if you, if you made an ad at the deadline and in the season doesn't resume, you would be like, uh, you would just feel like a team that made an ad at the deadline and lost in the first round. I think that's what it would be like. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the end all. I mean, I guess here's the question, Sean. Do any teams overextend themselves so much? I mean, the closest I'm thinking about is like the Columbus Blue Jackets who made all those moves Last and went year, yeah. all in. That kind of a thing would have really hurt them if they had done all of that adding, giving up pieces, and then they mm-hmm. didn't even have a playoff. Yeah. But even then, like I think from a business standpoint, your man- hockey management should never get to the point where – and maybe that's actually a good exercise. If you're about to make a trade at the deadline, you should say, okay, if this player comes in and gets hurt or this – you know, we – if the playoffs didn't happen, if there's a global pandemic, which used to be sort of a punchline and now is oddly yeah. way too real and hits home, but if there was something like that and the thing shut down, how much would that hurt us to have made this move? Yeah. I mean, so I guess the other thing that Max is asking that I don't have in front of me is the teams that might get more pieces in trades because a team and that player went on to a couple rounds of the playoffs, right? Yeah. You know, the Stars wouldn't have Jason Dickinson today if it wasn't for Boston getting to the conference final in the last year of Tyler Sagan in Boston because that moved their pick conditionally to a first-rounder for the Yager trade. That's the kind of thing that if they don't get to playoffs and beyond, those trades will kind of fall apart, won't they? Yeah, the conditional trades are fascinating with all of this. Um, so I, it's, I, it's hard to assign a loser, but... Um... I uh, so I, I don't really think it's fair too because I think right now we're all losers that like just just to be frank we're all losers that there's no hockey right now just everyone is right like, I think some like, of the teams that gave away first round draft picks would probably feel the most pain right yeah. I mean to give up to give up a important draft pick down the road to help now is I think a justifiable expense but if you end up not having that. That's where Max is going with it, right? But, Those... with, with, hind, yeah, but with hindsight here, you won't be angry at the GM. Because, right. Like, well, you, like, you couldn't have known. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, but so, that's so. not – yeah, that's not the thing. Yeah. Okay. So right. let's move on. Uh, Max had another question. Who do you think this break helps the most, team-wise and player-wise? We've kind of touched on this before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But just briefly, uh, I think – I mean, I think this break hurts everybody because everybody's back to square one, whereas they were in, you know, mid to late season conditioning – but it helps all the players that were injured and have a chance to be fully healthy. The Colorado Avalanche are one of those teams. Yeah, for me, it's Colorado. It's just that that's the one where you get a fully healthy Miko Rantanen, who's someone who the original timeline was, hey, he comes back maybe the uh, comes back mid-first round. Now he's fully healthy and maybe even on a better level than everyone else because he's been able, injured players have been able to skate. Right. So um, I, uh, I would say Colorado. I'm going to Brian... Brian Taylor, if the if the Stars win the Cup in 1998, do they still sign Hull in the offseason and reload at a chance for a second straight Cup? Um, yes, I mean, I to me, I don't think... Obviously, the Stars didn't win 
they didn't win the Winter Cup in 98. One of the issues was Joe Newendike was hurt. Yes. Uh, and if Joe Newendike is healthy, maybe they beat Detroit in that round and they go on to win the Cup. Um, now, we always look at one of the reasons that the the way they went and got whole was they needed that offense for a final piece of the puzzle. However, with what that team was and what ownership was willing to spend at the time, the stars would have been a very attractive option for Brett Hull still. The stars were still willing to spend money. And, and so I, I don't, th- I think, I think them winning the cup in 90, 1998 doesn't change the fact that Brett Hull would have been interested in signing Dallas and doesn't change the fact the stars would have been interested in signing him. Well, there's no, remember this is pre salary cap era, so they could have done it. It wasn't a question of money or, Hey, do we fit this? So I think so, but obviously it, that confluence of events helped bring Hull to the stars. Yeah. French toast writes in a funny one. Uh, Owen, did you have to mow the lawn this week? That's of course a nod to our last week's discussion about gates and fence repair. Um, so the answer is no, but I probably should this weekend. So um, we'll have to maybe throw the lawnmower over the fence that I've erected. No, no, we'll figure it out. I uh, I have some deck screws holding up the fence pieces that are replacing the gate that I demolition or demolished. So we'll deal with that. Uh, she also wrote in, I read a set article today about more furloughs in Frisco. I'm assuming that's about Sean's article. Guys, given that there will be no gate purse for the 2020 playoffs, explain how TV-only playoffs benefit the Stars financially or otherwise. Well, the I mean, it's the TV. The TV money is 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 big for NHL owners and teams. They need to get that. There's money that by hosting the playoffs and running them that they they will get from TV TV partners they would not get otherwise. And and players too. And players right? too, yeah. The, the big thing on the players is that if hockey-related revenue drops substantially, that makes their escrow payments go up yeah. drastically. And that's what they're yeah. looking at for next season is much, much higher escrow payments, and the players do not like that. So no, they, they would like to nullify as much of that as they can. And, of course, they don't want to give up a shot at a Stanley Cup during their finite careers. Mm-hmm. From, a team, so- from a team perspective, it's possibly having to pay back money that might all already have been collected, which they do not want to do. No. So it it is, it is from a business standpoint and it's a dollars and dollars and cents amount that we don't have in front of us right now, but there is a huge financial impact of being able to play the playoffs. Even if your team is one that's going to be out, there's still a money aspect of. Well, and it's a domino effect. I'm I'm speaking off the cuff here, so I don't have a firsthand knowledge of this, but I'm assuming Sean, that the team that the you know it would be money that you've already collected from the broadcasters right the NBC or uh, Rogers Sportsnet up in Canada which also is huge money and then in turn those broadcast entities have collected advertising dollars from all these companies for their broadcasts and if they don't mm-hmm. be, have be, aren't able to honor that do they either have to give the money back to their advertisers or do they have to then you know, sort of reciprocate in kind with future broadcasts, I think there's a huge domino effect. There is, there is. So it's, I know it's, I know a lot of the, the other thing too, and this is, it's, this is not meant to be a cruel sentiment, but it's true. Like I, I had someone ask me, it's just like, well, it wouldn't be the same if they won the Stanley Cup with no one in the building and everything like that. This is not meant to be cruel, but as much as players like home atmospheres, they don't, 
you you don't play to win the Stanley Cup to win for the fans. You 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 want to win, and you hope your fans will make you happy. But the Joe Pavelski wants to win a Stanley Cup for Joe Pavelski. Yes. Just I'm just picking a random name. Right. I'm not no, saying but Joe that's Pavelski a good one. Sense. Yeah. Like it's for example, it's not as it's it's not like. Well, will it be weird? Yes. It's still going to be a Stanley Cup, which is you talk to players that have won them or you talk to players that haven't won them, particularly players that haven't won them after their careers. It's a big legacy thing. Yeah. So. Jen writes in, so I never see the players' game day suits. Oh, by the way, uh, I just wanted to say, Sean, on the thing about the furloughs, Yeah, it's very sad uh, for all the – Dallas Stars employees that have gone on that, which is a, a vast majority of them now, it's not something that the organization wanted to do. They were trying really hard not to. Uh, I'm not trying to stick up for them. I'm just telling you what we've seen and heard about. And from what you spoke with with the Stars team president, Brad Alberts, it sounds like they want, they're hoping that this is a relatively short circumstance. I mean, they're being optimistic. They're hoping yeah. that it's... Uh... They're they're hoping hoping that it's that they're able to that they're able to bring everyone back sooner than later. But obviously everything is fluid. So Jen writes in. So I never see the players' game day suits in their stalls during TV interviews or random peeks into the dressing room. Are there actually two locker room slash dresser room dressing rooms, or where do the street clothes get whisked away to? So this is a great question because. One of the things that you will hear, particularly, I think, Sean, from older NHL uh, people and especially on the Canadian side, is they do not like the term locker room. It's dressing yeah. room. They, and they're very specific about it. And I understand why, because there aren't actually lockers in the Stars' dressing room. The dressing room is the main room where you see all of the equipment. And the players go in and they get dressed to play. But they actually have what the, it's, you could call it a locker room, but it's really what they call a change room. And this, so back in the day, they used to just have one room where they had their equipment and their clothes and players would gear up and down and strip down and shower and all that. And so you see guys in towels and all that nonsense during media interviews and stuff. The, I don't know when exactly what year it was, they, this kind of changed, but they figured out, hey, we can have a separate room to get changed in clothes wise. Yeah. And so then you don't have to strip down th- past your underwear or your dry fit under armor and then be naked in front of the television cameras if you so choose. So, yeah, they have a dressing room, and then they have a change room. Yep. All right. Uh, from Patrick, uh, who is the all-time cup of coffee stars lineup? Successful example, successful players who played one season or less in Dallas, guys like Urbe, Lindros, Lemieux, etc. And so I asked Patrick for a follow-up just because I was curious. He kind of piqued my interest. I said, I, I was curious if they had to be good when they were in Dallas because obviously <laughs> there is a, there is a, um, like uh, there's we're a talking, long list of players that have yes. come, made their way through Dallas but maybe were at the end of their career. Like for me, the, the first one that popped to mind, just as far as cup of coffee and wasn't good in Dallas, but was good and actually became a Hockey Hall of Famer was Sergei Markarov, um, who played a total of, I think it was four games with Dallas before basic, it basically he just made fun of Hitch behind his back all the time and <laughs> then, and then, and then, and then left. So, uh, so yes, Sergei Markarov is in the Hockey Hall of Fame 
and was a Dallas Star, a Hockey Hall of Famer that played for the Dallas Stars, but he played four games for the Dallas Stars during the 96-97 season, and it went very poorly. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to go through that. I mean, so to me, to what me, would the you first, say? So to me, the first just kind of at first glance and not having a roster in front of me and not having a record book in front of me, um, the the guy who is your first pick if you're building a cup of coffee team that was actually good is Matt Zuccarello. Yeah. I mean, he, he played two games. <laughs> he played playoffs. two regular, I mean, played two. would you call Yarmir Yager's stint with Dallas a cup of coffee? Because it was, it was uh, he, less he, than a full he, season. Yeah, if you're using one season or less, yeah, he fits. Um, That'd be like, the one that stands out to me. Yeah, you're looking at Zuccarello, you're looking at Yager. Um, ben Lovejoy. Looking, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're looking at uh, Tim Thomas had a cup of coffee here. It yep. was really weird, Pad. So, and it was um, kind of past his, his prime, but he was still yeah. here. Yeah. Interesting. That'd be a fun exercise to do at a later date, I think. Um, Sean, this one's for you. Jesse wrote in, loved your captain's week pieces in any, is any kind of in-depth one-on-one with Jamie Ben that accurately or that accurately captures his personality at all possible during his career? Would it have to be the right interviewer at the right time or would it just never happen? Um, so the issue is, and I think one of the things that people think about these one-on-one, um, in-depth interviews and stuff like that with, with Jamie Ben is like I had just for example for this story I had lots of I actually had a really good conversation with Jamie for this story um, I had some I had good con- good conversation with Jamie where we talked about some things and we talked about what certain things means and everything like that but and this is just to be blunt about this you go and transcribe it and it's still a boring quote like, and this is Jamie actually giving his time. This is Jamie giving thoughtful answers, taking his time to talk about it and everything like that. And the quote was still boring. And there was a couple of them that I remember even looking over them. And I even tra- sent the transcription over to my editor. And he said, it's like, it's like, yeah, for, for my purposes, for written word, these, these don't tell us anything. Right. Because even though Jamie, I can hear it in his voice and he's being more sincere than he typically is. And he's actually taking some time to talk about this. It's very boring. That's just... He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't give much on that. Um, he I does not like to talk about himself. Not at all. And that's it's just it. the best things you can do for good sound bites from Jamie Ben, and we've both experienced this, is to ask him about other players on his team or other yeah. things that don't include. So tell me about yourself or what you did in this player or yeah. how this affects you. I think so. To kind of get the to answer a question of kind of the one on one with Jamie that actually actively captures personality. It would kind of have to be that one. It would have to be a one-on-one, and I'm thinking people would. And for for whatever reason, I keep hearing one-on-one, and I keep hearing people think of like television. That's what people think of. Yes. It would. It would have to be a one-on-one where you don't ask Jamie a single question about himself. I would think that it would be fun if you could do a one-on-one to get him to reminisce about previous teams, players, seasons. Not right now, but. You know, yeah. hey, I'd like to sit down and talk to you about the 2010 Calder Cup playoff run with the Texas Stars or and, and, and get fun stories to get him to tell that. Again, I don't know Jamie like this, um, and that's part of our whole point on this, but I wonder if, if some of, I mean, we've said this before, some of the best ways to get insights on Jamie is to talk to his teammates. 
Yeah, and the other the other thing about Jamie is just it would for to get the for to kind of get that video one on one that gives personality. It would have to be one of his. It would have to be someone in the circle asking him in his circle asking him questions. You know what we be, should do? There's an idea. You need not you personally, but we need to get Jordy to interview Jamie. Do you think that would work? Maybe. Or, but or he, do you he, get Tyler to do it? Maybe, but it's something you'd have to get done without Jamie realizing what you're trying to do. Well, you'd have to do it with like a Jeff Totes kind of thing where he's behind the scenes, but it's not maybe set up as a formal sit-down interview. But, uh, yeah. hey, you guys are going to go talk, and I'm just going to film you. Don't You don't even know I'm here. Yeah, and that's why some of the stuff Totes does does give us glimpses and everything like right, that. Right, because it's less invasive of camera yeah. in your face. Yeah. Uh, Gal Bagus, so I've been thinking of doing a podcast with my brony buddies, uh, Diamond Wit, Shakira, I don't know. Anyway, um, got any podcasting tips for us? Um, stick to a time limit. <laughs> No, I think, the, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's a couple things about that. We've not been very good about staying within our timelines yeah. because it's different when you're on the radio or television. You have hard out times. You have to. So you it really forces you to get your through your points succinctly. And I think that's actually very important. It makes for good broadcasting. The, to me, the big podcasting ones, besides the time limit, which what Sean said is really important, is figure out your technology so that you're happy with at least the, the sound quality you're doing. And do it, right? Even if you're doing yeah. a podcast and only your friends are listening and it's five people, that's, I mean, if you ever want to do something, just do it. That's how broadcasters get better is by practicing over and over and over. And I guarantee you that Sean, who is a writer by trade, has gotten way better as a broadcaster, podcaster, being on NHL Network now than he was when he first started. And I'm the same way. It's because of repetitions. Yeah, it's it's the repetition and just kind of the comfort level is huge. Just kind of keep going and going and going. I mean, there are some, there are the the fact that I can. I mean, something that you never think about in the moment, but like I remember where when I first kind of first started covering the NHL, and actually, you know, probably probably take it back to the last couple of years I had in Cedar Park, including the years Texas won the Calder Cup. There was a couple times I I did a couple radio things for other for other people um and there and i would be nervous before doing a phone radio interview with someone it would be it would just be kind of the like ah, i'm nervous and you remember the first time i had you on for an intermission guest in cedar park i don't specifically i just remember having you come on and I, I, remember, feel, I remember I, doing it. I don't remember the first time in specific. I remember them. But I yeah. don't either, but I feel like if you did it today and you heard back those, you'd go, my God, I sounded awful back then. Oh, yeah. And same, right. thing, same, same thing happens with writing. I've gone back and I've seen stories from oh. the past two where I've been like, oh, man, what an idiot. How did you write that? <laughs> I've always <laughs> said that I never want to look back at my college essays and term papers and things because yeah. I know at the time I put a lot of effort into it, maybe some more than others, but... I'll bet you today I'd go, my God, I turned that in. I actually presented I, that as my work. I've done that with old like stories before where I've like, where I've looked How at far stories. back? Um, like I think the last one where I did that was cause when this year, um, my parents have a box of like old, like uh, old newspapers and stuff in their basement. And so back in, what was it? October. 
I think it was October. Well, either October or November, whenever Dallas was in Columbus this year, I went. I went and had dinner at their house the night before the game, and so then I went to the. Uh, I went and checked. I think in. they were October because that was still Wait, part of that one yeah, seven that was, one. That start. was October. October because I drove from Columbus to Pittsburgh yep. after that. Um, the uh, I remember they canceled practice in Columbus. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And so Much I to remember, your chagrin. Yeah. And so I remember looking through that and looking through a couple like old college newspapers that my parents had in a box downstairs. And I remember looking at those thinking like, Oh, this is, this is bad. Yeah. This is awful. How this could ever get a job. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start so, somewhere, but that's yeah. the point, right? You yeah. have to start somewhere. It doesn't matter how good you are when you start. It's that you listen to it. That's the other podcasting tip is any broadcaster or writer, you yeah. have to watch yourself. You have to listen yeah. to your work. At some point, and it might feel awkward at first to go, ew, I don't like how I sound. Or I can't. Well, it's the only way you get better is to get used to listening so you can say, I don't like what I said here. I don't like the style of it. I need to make this sound better. All right. Last question I, for you, Sean. Actually, I, I, will, I will add one more note okay. to that just as far as just because in that same theme. The other thing is to not be afraid to take feedback and realize that feedback is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's something where even even now, just when it, even now, as far as when I'm writing something or working on something and an editor goes through, I, I love to go and look at my story I handed in to my editors and then see the edits they made. And I right. love to be able to, and I, I want to be, and if I don't understand why, I want to be able to have that conversation and, and ask, okay, well, why do we make this change? And, and it's something where it's it's a good thing. Have you gotten over getting insulted when things are changed from the way you did it? Um, I mean, it's been... Or miffed, I guess. Insulted is a strong word. Uh, I mean, I haven't been insulted. When an editor makes changes, I haven't been insulted in a while. But I have. there have been times where... Um, I've really liked something yes. in a story. I've really liked something. Well, and it's your said, personal touch yeah. on it. And it's like yeah. they're taking – no, I specifically did it like this and they changed that. That has to be frustrating. That, that, that can be frustrating. And then there's a lot of times – the other thing that's really good about that too though, just as something where um, just in this kind of – just and this is just prevalent because it goes into my recent story that I did on Jamie. There are times where you've worked on a story for so long and this is just kind of, this is getting off topic and this is a writing thing, but there are times you've worked for a story for so long and you've put so much work and you have all of this information that you get too deep into the weeds on it. It, it, it happens. Um, and there, there's times where you need someone who, who hasn't gotten, who hasn't been in the weeds to be able to stop you and say, Hey, that's cool that you have this, but this doesn't really add to the story. Like, for example, Boy, imagine the, if an editor went through our podcast today. Oh yeah, <laughs> we'd, get, we'd get ripped apart. But the the, the point. Why is, are you talking about states you've been? That has nothing to do with the topic. Yeah. <laughs> the the point being here is you have there are things like for example when I went to Finland last year, there's I wrote I wrote a four thousand word story. If I if I did every if I wrote about every single thing I did in Finland in the week, it would have been. It could have been 10,000 words long. And there's details where I'd be kind of beating in the writing process. I'd be looking at it and be like, oh, well, I really need to get this detail, this this minor detail in because I know it. And I'd have that conversation with my others. Like, it's like, okay, it's like, yeah, you don't have to worry about getting that in. The read, it's not like the, uh, you're not shorting the reader 
by not putting this minor so piece in. So this transitions perfectly, Sean, into Ardell's final question. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to piggyback off of what you just said. Ardell wrote in, Sean, you recently compared Jamie Benn's character to that of Dirk. Bold mm -hmm. statement. Will you reiterate or expound upon why? But that's not the question that carries over. He then wrote, asked yeah. me and said, Owen, what does your game day preparation consist of, and will there ever be a radio-only game broadcast? So my game day preparation consists of a lot of studying of the opponent and the stars and, and looking at stats, whether it's in the game notes or reading some of the articles that are out there, coming up with trends of what we've seen of what's looking like, who's playing well, who's play not playing well. And so I end up typing up all these notes and tidbits throughout a game. And whether it's for a Stars pregame broadcast, pregame show, or for a FC Dallas play-by-play -play broadcast, you have all these notes about individual players, the team, team trends. And this is where Sean's getting into it. Just because I wrote down a note does not mean I have to force-feed it into yep. a broadcast. In fact... And most broadcasters will attest to this. A majority of the things you prepare for, you don't even use. And the reason is, is because it, sports is unpredictable. If you write a movie script or write a book, you can generally, you know what you're, where you're going. So you can decide what you're going to use and what you're not going to use. With sports being live and unpredictable, you don't know. And so you have to be prepared for as many different possibilities as you can come up with. And also be able to react to the ones you didn't without knowing if any of it's going to be useful. So that's exactly, you have to be, and earlier in my career, I was more desiring of, God, I want to get, this is a great stat. I got to get this yeah. in. But if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit and you can't play it. It's a perfect example goes into how much of, and it's one of the things that, um, it, it, I talked. I was talking to somebody recently about like the, the value of the morning skate, for example. And a lot of the times, there'll be things from the morning skate where you you make a, you make observations, you take notes, you talk to people, you get nuggets and stuff like this. And we may never use them ever again. You may never use them ever yep, again. Never. You may you may use them that night. Maybe maybe that's the day you talk to a guy and he says, "Oh, I changed the blade of my stick," and then he scores a goal that night. Maybe you use that night. Then again, maybe it's the type of thing where you get a note where we're talking, where you get a note, you get a note on this day, and a month later something happens that applies to that, and then you then and then it becomes so much of this. It's 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 fascinating to see just kind of look back on where certain information comes together, like even and how stories come together. Like even my my story on Jamie, really one of the main reasons this turned into this big story was. Um, Back in November, I had a conversation with Jamie where he was a little bit more open about things, and it was it was uh, he was a little bit more open about things. And he said he said to me that Dallas is my home. I'm I I want to play here for the rest of my career. That's the type of thing where back in November, part of me is itching to be like, and I was the only person talking to Jamie at the time. Part of me is itching to in this in this instant gratification world to go and tweet it right then. Right. Like you know what? Oh, I'm gonna go tweet it. I'm gonna put it out there. Everything like that would have got a lot of retweets and everything like that instead you know what okay i'm gonna take that idea i'm going to apply it to looking at things throughout the season looking at things and do something bigger with this and it's 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 interesting just kind of 
what notes you end up using and what notes you never use. And I'm sure there's notes that we have right now that are maybe in the back of our head <laughs> that, that we may uh, that we may end up meeting in the season next at some point during the next season that per- we don't even realize right now. Perfect example: When I was watching the Stars and Oilers games, I have notes that I we talked about a whole segment that I didn't use because. You have to read off your partner we are talking about, what Sean is saying, what I'm saying, what makes sense for the conversation. I can't just go and say, stop what you're saying, Sean. We have to talk about how awesome it was that Wayne Gretzky dropped the puck to just a raucous ovation in Edmonton for the start of Game 4. Now, I just squeezed it in here. It was awesome. But we didn't talk about the fact that uh, the detailed breakdowns of the two stars' goals on the power play. We talked about one of them. We didn't talk, and that's my point is that things get set aside. Now it was really cool to see that Edmonton crowd go nuts for Gretzky and how funny it was that Glenn Sather orchestrated that as they desperately needed a win in game four. But to me, it was just amazing. I just found myself thinking, man, imagine being Wayne Gretzky. You're the best player in the world. You're an incredible athlete. And then you walk out into Edmonton and the building just about blows its roof off just because you're out there. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's that would have been that's that's a fascinating timing too because that would have been you think about it Gretzky had just retired because the Rangers missed the playoffs right I mean he was still playing well he retired in '99 right so I mean but he was still playing active that season yes he was still active right. that season. he had just decided this is it so yeah. so he gets the I'm retired celebratory walkout during the playoffs yeah. what two weeks after his last game yeah with another team yeah. I will say just to touch on Ardell's first question. Yes, he please. Said that, he said he said that um, you recently compared Ben's character to that of Dirk. That's a bold statement. Um, that is, and so when you're making statements like that, that is very much has something you have to source in fact. And I think it is important to clarify if you and, and it is in that story. That is a comparison made by Marty Turco. Marty Turco, who runs the Stars Foundation and sees a lot of the things Jamie does in the community, and has also. Marty has talked to the Mavericks Foundation and been around Dirk before and everything like that. So that was a comparison that Marty made, and that is a uh, that 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 is where that claim comes from. And it's not a claim I'm disputing at all, but just I think if you're going to make if you're going to make bold claims and you're going to make something like claims like that, you have to be able to back them up either by your own evidence or other person's evidence. I probably wouldn't compare him to Dirk if I didn't have Marty saying I would right. compare him to Dirk. Uh, the last question he asked was, will there ever be a radio-only game broadcast? Um, yeah, I could see that happening in the future, but probably not in the Daryl Ray era because the Stars love, justifiably love Razor. He does an incredible job on the broadcast. And the Ticket, the Stars flagship radio station, also really appreciates his work, and they like having him on as well as on that simulcast. I agree with people that when you have a, it, it's impossible to do a radio style broadcast and a TV simultaneously that appeases to both. There are some that are better than others at doing one, which is a little more talking on TV than you need, but not so much that it drives you nuts. And it's a little better for listening on radio when you don't have pictures, but it's not as much as you would want for a radio. It's, it's, it's near impossible to do both well at the same time. But, you know, they, they like it. So uh, 10 years from now, maybe, but not in the next few years. That's, my, that's just my thought. No, I, I think you coined it perfectly when you said not. As long as Daryl Ray is here, it's not happening and not changing. And right. I don't think, and I don't think he's going anywhere for a while. I don't, 
I don't think he's going anywhere for a while either. Um, so that's, uh, but, yeah. That is a monster lightning round. We did almost an hour. Sean, we're terrible at keeping ourselves within the time yeah. limit. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope that uh, that our ex like marathon quadcasts don't make you go. All right, we're stop. We're not listening anymore. Yeah, well, it's uh, we're glad to be talking about something. So, and I hope you're enjoying listening. So, thank you. Uh, we're two months in, and we're still going. I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca road. When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load If you're going to win a muckamack with me, you can ride And so I climbed into the cab and then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road with so much dust and sand And I said, listen, I've traveled every road in this here land I've been everywhere, man, I've been everywhere, man Across the deserts, bare man, I breathe the mountain air, man I travel, I've had my share, man, I've been everywhere I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla, I'm a killer I've been everywhere, man I've been everywhere, man, across the deserts, bare man, I breathe the mountain air, man, travel I've had my share, man, I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, County, Monterey, Faraday, Santa Fe, Tallapoosa, Glen Rock, Black Rock, Little Rock, Oskaloosa, Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee, Spirit Lake, Grand Lake, Devil's Lake, Crater Lake, Beach Lake, I've been everywhere, man, I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man, I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Louisville, Nashville, Knoxville, Ombabaka, Shefferville, Jacksonville, Waterville, Coastal, Rocket, Pittsfield, Springfield, Bakersfield, Shreveport, Hackensack, Cadillac, Fond du Lac, Davenport, Idaho, Jellicoe, Argentina, Diamantina, Pasadena, Catalina, Sea, Guadalamina. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Pittsburgh, Parkersburg, Gravelburg, Colorado, Ellensburg, Rexburg, Vicksburg, Eldorado, Laramore, Atmore, Havistock, Chattanooga, Chaska, Nebraska, Alaska, Opelika, Baraboo, Waterloo, Kalamazoo, Kansas City, Sioux City, Cedar City, Dodge City, what a pity. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been everywhere.